Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Lawrence B.A. Hatter about his book, Citizens of Convenience, The Imperial Origins of American Nationhood, published by the University of Virginia Press in 2017. Dr. Hatter is an associate professor of history, history at Washington State University. Citizens of Convenience documents how traders in the northern borderlands of the early American Republic constantly shifted sides between British and American nationalities for their own benefit, or at the very least, the fear that this was happening. By exploring the loopholes created by treaties the nascent United States signed with Britain, Dr. Hatter shows that the U.S.-Canadian border was a critical site to America's nation and imperial building, and that the shifting loyalties of borderland residents threatened to derail this project. Dr. Hatter, welcome to the program. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I guess to begin, could you tell our listeners how you initially came to this topic? What kind of made you interested in studying this? Uh, well, I was working, it's when I was in graduate school. It was my, you know, the book's a refinement of the dissertation I wrote, which is pretty common. Um, but I was working at, uh, as a research assistant at the papers of George Washington that they house at UVA. So this is a documentary editing project has been going on for decades, uh, trying to publish and make available all of the letters, papers, and other things uh, concerning George Washington. Um, So anyway, I was fortunate enough to work on that. And while I was there, I came across the papers of uh, John Askin, who was a merchant in Detroit um, beginning in the 1760s and uh, until his death in 1815. Anyway, I was looking at these uh, papers. I was sort of interested in looking at the early American West and um, discovered that he um, remained a British subject living in Detroit um, until the early 19th century. And that was sort of the leaping off point in terms of, you know, why is this guy still here? Why is he remaining in Detroit after uh, the American Revolution when the boundary is initially drawn um, in 1783. He remains there until, I think, 1802, uh, but remains as a British subject. He doesn't transfer allegiance. Um, so I was sort of curious about this, what's going on here, how many people, how many of these people are there, and that was the kind of leaping off point. And one of the – in the beginning of your book, you talk about how – you define citizenship, like what it is, you know, I think a lot of people who might be unfamiliar with kind of thinking about citizenship on a daily basis might just think of it as kind of just a, oh, it's a static kind of status. But for you, um, you know, there's a lot at stake here. So what is citizenship as the way that you kind of look at it in your study? Well, purists would probably hate what I do in the sense that most of the people I talk about are actually subjects rather than citizens. And that, in essence, is a distinction that I don't want to explore uh, in this book. Um, I think often when uh, historians or political scientists think about citizenship, they think about it in juxtaposition with the idea of subjecthood. The American Revolution was really about defining citizenship as this uh, sort of basis in individual rights and the sort of um, empowerment that comes out of citizenship for people after the revolution. It's kind of a way we, uh, in some ways, uh, sort of celebrate the revolution. This is a great thing. It's empowering individuals and so on and so forth, uh, as opposed to subjecthood, which is, you know, imposed on on birth, is indefeasible, the British will argue. Um, Sort of these two different categories. But what I'm really interested in is uh, nationality, thinking of citizenship and subjecthood as both categories of nationality. And what I mean by that is sort of national belonging in the sense, in a legal sense. So, I mean, culture comes into it, um, but I would argue um, that uh, the sort of cultural distinction between 
British subjects and American citizens is really unclear and doesn't really crystallize until the 19th century. So what I mean by this is who belongs to a legal community? Because this is really what in, um, underpinned the claim to independence, um, which is invoked by Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence, and um, that the American people are a distinct political community. And this is what justifies, aside from George III's uh, naughtiness, and this is what justifies them breaking the bonds with you know, the other people, the British people. So it's about who, how do you define who is a member of a distinct legal community within the community of nations? So in essence, what? how can you tell legally who is an American citizen or who is a British subject? And that's the sort of central conundrum that I explore in this book in the Northern Borderlands. And I, I really appreciate kind of thinking of it as more of this legal, you know, community in terms of like, what kind of nationality do you belong to? Maybe that's just because I study citizenship myself. And that's the way I kind of think about it. But you know, I I kind of think that that's a really good way of, of discussing that, especially during this early time period, where as you said, the distinction between citizenship and subjecthood is is really not as distinct as you see in the 19th century. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we tend to make these things absolutes as well. I mean, and part of that is living, well, it's not even true in the 20th century, but, you know, crossing a boundary today, having a passport, you still have stateless people and things like that. But we want to create these categories. We want to make them normative um, because that was the, the initial founding claim is that they should be these normative categories. But there are always different categories of people who don't quite fit into uh, either being defined as a citizen or an alien. And actually reading the work of uh, Elizabeth F. Cohen, who's a political theorist, uh, she wrote a book called uh, Semi-Citizenship in Democratic Society, something like that. I've probably butchered the title. But that was influential in the sense that she recognizes even today there are different degrees of citizenship um, in the sense of you know foreign, uh, foreign uh, aliens who are resident within a country, for example. They're clearly not fully citizens, but neither are they fully aliens, that they possess some of the rights of citizenship, uh, particularly the right of movement and entry and things like that. Um, and I think thinking about citizenship as, as a more of a spectrum um, is a, sort of a useful way to think about, you know, the the nature of, of sort of political membership in modernity. When we think about, uh, uh, you know, it isn't an absolute between citizens and non-citizens. And this is highly politicized, as we know. Yeah, definitely. And... I was wondering, in terms of the the kind of focus of your book, you know, it's really focused on trade and how trade is central to the early, you know, creation of citizenship or nationality, you know, this kind of belonging. So how and why is trade so central to your study? Trade was one of the, the ways in which Americans or the United States engaged with the rest of the world. Um, after independence. And, you know, an older view of the American Revolution, um, you know, tied up with sort of Whig narratives and exceptionalism and all that sort of stuff, thinks of the American Revolution as a rejection of the old world of Europe, uh, a sort of a, an isolationist impulse by Americans to sort of turn inward or turn westward for that matter. Um, but I think that most historians over the last 20 years or at least um, have rejected this and that uh, we um, people like Elijah Gould for example in his uh, among the powers of the earth have argued persuasively I think that um, the American Revolution was very outward looking too that it was about the United States claiming uh, its position as an equal member in the community of nations so okay that's all very very abstract um, but what I mean by trade is trade is one of the ways that Americans actually engage with the rest of the world and this was meant to be one of the benefits of the American Revolution um, most people learn from grade school um, you know the navigation acts and all this sort of stuff um, that upset the colonists you know mercantilism and so on and so forth uh, cutting off American trade and all of that is tremendously overblown um, for reasons that we don't necessarily have to get into right now um, but the idea of free trade was something that comes out of the American Revolution unquestionably this is something that John Adams is concerned with in the model treaty that he uh, produces in 1776, and then um, Jefferson too, and um, James Madison are both interested in trying to reform the sort of international uh, state system by replacing war 
with trade, right? Trade can be the basis of equality between nations, of reciprocity, of peace as an alternative to war and conflict. Um, and that as well is also pretty abstract. But when it actually comes down to the, you know, the sort of concrete conditions, the nature of trade, international trade, merchants having relationships with other merchants in other cities, uh, sailors, ships moving, the movement of commodities and things like that. This is an actual tangible way in which many uh, Americans, um, not just living in port cities, but uh, along the, the inland borders of the United States, um, actually interacted with other people. And this is one of the reasons why I think the border is so fascinating is it's a place where these legal distinctions between a citizen or a, a national and a foreign national or people who some fit in some spectrum in between, this is a place where that can distinction can be made. Um, and that's still sort of the case today, right? If we travel internationally or um, either crossing the border with Canada or Mexico or flying outside of the United States, this is a, one of the few moments where most sort of uh, ordinary people are actually sort of aware of the nature of nationality having to uh, produce your passport, having to you know fill in these various uh, online visa things and things like that. I mean, there's always that moment of uncertainty, um, you know, when you're called up to talk to the border agent, right? I mean, everyone I think has that little hand over the passport, and you're like, oh, what's going to happen? Um, you know, even if you're just coming back into the country. But this is something, you know, that's a place. These sort of uh, zone, you know, these borders between nations is a place where that distinction is really felt and can be made real or not, as the case may be. So I think trade is one of those ways where America, just to come back to that question, this is one of the, the major um, sort of mediums through which uh, Americans actually encountered uh, the world. And that, that's why it's so central to this idea of citizenship as belonging within a national community among the nations of the earth. Yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate that because, I mean, it's it's something that, you know, even in the modern day, I think, as you just said, you know, most people are not consciously thinking of themselves um, in really concrete terms as having to, you know, proclaim their nationality ex unless they are presented with, you know, a situation like, you know, passing over or handing over their passport, you know, while traveling abroad, then they're just like, oh, oh. And then, as you said, you know, having this sort of uneasiness, even as you know who you may be. And then as your book is pointing out, you know, during this time, these border regions are areas where people might have shifting loyalties. And so that creates an uneasiness in and of itself. Absolutely. And there's a number of reasons why that is. And one of which is, you know, we tend to think of when we talk about nationality or, you know, uh, patriotism or things like that, it's very much tied up with cultural differences, right? That this is how we're thinking about nationalism. This was also an older way of um, interpreting the American Revolution, that it was a moment of national consciousness by Americans, you know, that we're not British colonists, we are Americans. Um, I think that uh, claim has also uh, been refuted by scholarship over the last, I don't know, however many decades that the American Revolution really wasn't a national moment. Um, um, and what that sort of means is um, that the relationship between the British Empire and the American Republic is curious because there is that, there is, I mean, clearly there are uh, sort of regional differences within uh, Great Britain, something we often forget. Great Britain was only formed in 1707 with the union between Scotland and England and Wales. Um, regionalism within the British Empire was very diverse, you know, people coming from different regions within just the small British archipelago, let alone Virginia, Barbados, or wherever. Um, so there's a lack of sort of Britishness, but then there's clearly a lack of Americanness too as a distinct entity. Uh, and in fact, another uh, scholar who's looked at this at, at sea as opposed to a trade is uh, Nathan Pearl Rosenthal, and he talks about the logic of nationality that existed before the American Revolution, which I think is kind of a, a, a useful way to consider the problem. So in terms of working out, you know, sailors, the nationality of sailors, which we know is a problem in the War of 1812, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But before the American Revolution, there was a pretty clear logic. Did this person speak English? They were British. Did they speak French? They were French and so on and so forth. Um, there were other markers as well. In, um, in terms of religion and things like that. But that logic clearly doesn't work after the American Revolution. You speak English, could be an American, could be British. Um, 
accents, for example, you know, um, didn't really work in the early modern period either. Um, regional accents are so diverse throughout the British Empire that, you know, the things that we think of today as distinct markers of, you know, cultural nationalism didn't work in the 1780s, 1790s, even into the 19th century. And thinking about this more and, you know, as you were saying, you know, some of this is kind of like really abstract, um, even as, you know, you're really talking about things going on on the ground. So to get to some of the main kind of, you know, central parts moving in your book, you know, it kind of centers around three different treaties, the first of which is the Treaty of Paris. And so for our listeners who might be, you know, unfamiliar with this, could you briefly describe what the Treaty of Paris is? And then tell us why it's so important for kind of the initial, you know, border and, you know, American nationality that's being formed in the wake of the revolution. Yeah, whenever you mention treaties, people fall asleep, which is, <laughs> I think, unfortunate um, because they can be very significant um, in terms of the long-term impact of these uh, agreements. And I think none so more than the Treaty of Paris. So this is the treaty that ends the War of Independence uh, between Great Britain and the United States. It's one of several treaties that have to end the war. Britain also has to make peace with Spain, France, um, the Netherlands. Um, but what it does then is, well, the most important thing is George III recognizes American independence by this. So obviously, we celebrate, and obviously, I'm a bit of a transatlantic guy myself, so right now I'm being an American. Um, we celebrate independence in 1776, but in a sort of legalistic sense. The deal is done um, in 1783 with the Treaty of Paris. So this is negotiated um, by people, including Benjamin Franklin, um, and uh, a British, uh, a couple of British uh, diplomats, Richard Oswald is the last one uh, who's employed. But anyway, the point of it is, is it secures George III's recognition of American independence and renounces for him and his descendants the claims over the United States, which is kind of a big deal. But in terms of the border, it then also sketches out the border of the United States. And this was quite controversial at the time um, because even though we uh, you know, think of the war as being quite decisive, the war in the West was pretty indecisive. I mean, there are different, you've got people like George Rodgers Clark who are launching a campaign on behalf of Virginia, really more than the United States to claim control of the Illinois country. So he uh, successfully um, captures Vincennes in Southern Indiana. Um, but then you have a series of um, battles between uh, the King's Indian allies, the indigenous people of the Ohio country and the majority of native peoples did fight on behalf of the crown, not not all of them, and it was tremendously uh, divisive within Indian country, um, within the Iroquois Confederacy, for example, the Seneca uh, people tended to actually ally with the United States, whereas the rest of the Six Nations tended to ally uh, with George III. So you end up with uh, the Battle of Blue Licks in 1782 in Kentucky. Uh, Daniel Boone's son is killed there, actually. Um, but this is actually a victory for the King's Indian allies. Uh, so the situation in the West is sort of ambiguous. Um, and people are thinking about where the border might be drawn. Uh, it could be along the Appalachians, maybe along the Ohio River. Uh, but instead, it's drawn in the Great Lakes region. Um, in essence, it's the border as it is today. Uh, and why is this? Well, it, it's kind of a, it's, it's a surprise to many people in, in Great Britain, and it's certainly a tremendous surprise to the merchants that I study whose kinship networks and trading networks sort of extend north and south of what is now the border. Um, and there are various reasons why this happened. And the most likely one is uh, that the Prime Minister at the time, uh, the Earl of Shelburne, William Petty, thought that offering a generous border to the United States uh, would encourage the promotion of trade after the revolution. In essence, it would mean that the relationship between Britain and the 13 states as they are now would continue largely as it had done before the revolution, uh, but not in terms of politics, but in terms of trade and economics. So he thought it doesn't really matter where we draw the border. Uh, Britain is the leading manufacturer in the world. London is the great global market. We'll offer them this uh, sort of soft, uh, uh, you know, this generous Western border. The Americans can pay for the administration and we'll continue to do the trade. So there we go. The border's drawn. It's the same one as we've got today. Where's the controversy there? Uh, well, it all comes down to the fact that the nature of the border was never defined. 
um, for various basically domestic political reasons in Great Britain. Um, Franklin and the other American negotiators were sort of keen to uh, secure a sort of fairly broad, wide-ranging um, trade agreement with Great Britain, particularly to secure American access to Britain's West Indian colonies. Um, but this never happens, um, in part because of the political instability in um, London after the end of the War of Independence. You have some short-lived prime ministers. Eventually, William Pitt comes in as prime minister in 1784, and he takes a harder line against the United States. In essence, refuses to negotiate a commercial treaty with the US and has a bare-bones Treaty of Paris. Um, so that's one of the problems caused by this. We've got a border here, but what does it actually mean? You know, How are we going to determine who gets to cross the border, or the terms for crossing that border, the nature of trade across this border, and how does it affect indigenous people too? Because um, they're the, uh, the, by far the most numerous people living in the American West, uh, in the Great Lakes region at this time. What does it mean for them? Um, indigenous peoples possess certain aspects of sovereignty. Um, are they independent nations? Um, to what extent uh, does this treaty apply to them? So there's an awful lot of um, gaps in this treaty that aren't resolved for a long time. Um, and the other the last thing I'll say is um, the fact that the treaty, by the treaty, Britain was meant to evacuate uh, the Western posts in the Great Lakes. So probably aren't familiar with the Western posts. So these are important uh, fortifications at choke points throughout the Great Lakes regions. They include places like Niagara, so the Niagara River, right, famous for the falls, but there's Fort Niagara which basically controls, controls trade along the Niagara River. Uh, other places included Oswego in New York, uh, Detroit, the Detroit Straits, very important, important strategic location. So Detroit, Michelin-Mackinac or Mackinac, as we would say today, at the northern tip of Michigan uh, or the northern tip of the lower peninsula. Um, so all of these fortifications really controlled trade because this is trade based on rivers riverine network. So today we have interstates in the 18th century, early 19th century, we had rivers. Um, so Britain, despite what the Treaty of Paris had said, controlled basically the transportation network of the inland third of North America. Um, it continued to uh, garrison troops on American soil um, into the 1790s. So the treaty, on the one hand, Britain recognizes American independence. On the other hand, it refuses to deal with the United States as an independent uh, sort of co-equal nation in terms of trade. And it continues to ga uh, garrison troops on American soil. So this treaty is, in many ways, is uh, in some way, I mean, in many ways, it sort of appears to be sort of a, um, a temporary armistice rather than a long lasting treaty that is going to define the relationship between the United States and the British Empire. Because the I said it was the final thing, but I'm lying. All historians do um, when they say they've said everything. Everything else we say is absolutely true. Um, British Empire doesn't disappear after 1783. Uh, Britain retains the province of Quebec, province of Nova Scotia. Uh, this will later be, uh, become the uh, Lower Canada. And then what is to, uh, Upper Canada, which is today Ontario, is going to be colonized by uh, loyalists from the United States. So the British Empire doesn't go away. We often, I think, after the revolution, imagine that that's it. Britain moves on to different things in India or, or wherever, and that's certainly true. The British Empire continues to expand, but the British presence in North America doesn't disappear in the same way that Spanish presence doesn't disappear in Louisiana either. So I really am done now. I promise that's definitely it. <laughs> it for now. And I, I really, I really appreciate the the points made because you know I think a lot of people these days when they they think of a border, you know, they they think of it as a a sort of you know a hard fast like this is a line you need to go through customs and boom you're on one side or the other and as you're saying you know before this treaty the border didn't really exist in a meaningful way. And then afterwards, you know, how exactly can you have a border and a nation when you have an entire diff another um, empire 
still basically controlling large swaths of your land. And along with that, and one, this is one thing that I really appreciate about, appreciate about your book, and you mentioned them a, a few times just now, is that you have large populations of indigenous and Native American people. And so how do they um, factor into this? Because they're doing their own things, and then both sides are trying to figure out how they can use Native Americans and indigenous people to their advantage. Yeah, I mean, they're the central power brokers of what we could call the Midwest today uh, into the 19th century. Um, so in general, Britain relies on its uh, the King's Indian allies, is the term that would often be used, the indigenous people, military and diplomatic alliances with indigenous people to protect Canada after the revolution. And this becomes increasingly important after 1793 when you have the outbreak of the wars of the French Revolution, which are going to continue basically uh, without a break until 1815. And this is obviously Britain's major focus is uh, securing its global empire, uh, protecting itself from invasion, right? There's fears of invasion of uh, Napoleon in 1805. So basically what I'm saying is their military resources are focused in Europe and elsewhere. Um, so uh, they're certainly very interested in holding on to Canada. It would have been a disaster if they'd lost Canada, but they couldn't send, you know, the full military resources. They were dependent on their Indian allies um, to secure Canada from American invasion. And we know America loves to invade Canada. It's one of their great hobbies during this period, right? Even before the United States is, is uh, formed in 1776, there's an American invasion of Quebec in 1775. And as we'll probably hear, the Americans tried again in uh, 1812. Um, so this is the so as far as Britain is concerned, alliance with the indigenous peoples. And one of the ways, uh, the most important ways that this alliance was maintained is through trade. And this is the, you know, the, I guess the sort of archival bones of my, uh, of the book, or rather perhaps the archival meat, I should say, is uh, the role of these merchants and traders who are so important to maintaining a relationship between Great Britain and indigenous peoples in the West after the revolution. Um, so that that's the sort of British side of the equation. Um, the American side is uh, this sort of desperate need uh, to colonize the West, this belief in the need to build an expanding empire of union, that term, uh, empire of liberty, sorry, empire of liberty, that term we associate with uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson. And this isn't just so the United States could get bigger, but there was this sense that um, expansion westwards was central to the survival of the United States in terms of uh, preventing the emergence of rival republics or of rival Western colonies by other European powers, i.e. Britain, Spain, maybe even France, as we know, with the retrocession of Louisiana. Um, but then also this concern with opening up uh, or uh, uh, new commercial farmland um, for Easterners. So this is a concern that Jefferson has with industrialization, and he's not someone opposed to manufacturers outright, but he is concerned with urbanization, wage labor, um, sort of development of uh, what we might call more intense industry. So there's a desire to open up Western lands for colonization to uh, allow um, Easterners to produce their own, you know, have their own farms, own their own land, to be politically independent. This is a... Uh, or politically and economically independent. This is a, an underpinning of uh, the idea of republicanism, which is, uh, you know, important intellectual strain in the early republic. This idea of the independence of citizens as the basis for sort of collective good government. Uh, anyway, so the United States is keen on colonizing uh, uh, west of the Appalachians, and this is obviously native homelands for numerous peoples: um, Iroquois, Shawnee, Miami. Uh, Ottawa, so on and so forth. Um, so what this means is that obviously this military conquest is a big part of what the United States wants to do. Um, but they, in, and, you know, native confederacies in the 1780s, 1790s, and again, during the War of 1812, very successful in resisting the United States. But the concern among Americans is these British traders, the very people that I talk about, that they see these people as stooges of the British government, um, helping to foment indigenous opposition to American empire. They don't recognize the justice of, you know, these people just wanting to defend their homes. 
Um, but instead, they'd claim that you know native resistance is evidence of British duplicity and so on and so forth. So it all comes back to sort of indigenous people being power brokers in the West. Um, so that, you know, so their ability to cross that border is sort of really important in terms of what the United States is eventually going to try to do is to sort of restrict and confine indigenous people who are not citizens, not until 1924. Um, within the United States, so as a way, a measure of sort of uh, restricting and uh, controlling the sovereignty of indigenous people, because at the same time they did recognize that indigenous people had some form of sovereignty. But this had been ambiguous for centuries, trying to work out exactly what that meant. And speaking of, you know, once again, you know, crossing these borders and everything, and, you know, what this means. Um, when you when we get to the next treaty and you know listeners as we've said you know the treaty treaties are not boring don't don't fall asleep yet so we get to the j treaty could you briefly explain what the j treaty is and why it's important because as you say you know the j treaty represents a sort of trade uh, agreement that is fairly commonplace in europe and for Americans would have been, say, you know, you know, a feather in their cap towards having an agreement that mo- that brings them on the stage of European powers. But it actually does not do the nation any good when trying to sort of define itself and its borders. Yeah, so uh, the Jay Treaty, I call it America's favorite treaty. Uh, I've trademarked that, so don't use, no one else can use that. Um, so the Jay Treaty actually was America's most hated treaty at the time. Tremendously controversial treaty. Um, I don't know if any of your listeners have seen the HBO John Adams series, but it features in there. This was a, you know, part of, uh, the waning years of Washington's presidency, but John Adams was involved as the vice president. Anyway, for, they may have seen some of the popular demonstrations that depicted in that series. But what it was, was the first time that Great Britain and the United States had a formalized commercial treaty. So in that sense, it, it does seem to be something that affirms uh, the US's position as a you know bona fide nation, right? That Great Britain, great trading nation is recognizing the United States, is establishing a fairly broad uh, commercial treaty uh, recognize puts uh, the United States on most favored nation status, which was actually a lie. Um, that meant that they could trade uh, as, as uh, on the same favored status as countries like France and so on and so forth. So they weren't getting extra special privileges, but they were put on the same status as most European countries. It provided the U.S. access to uh, limited access to the West Indies, some access to British uh, trading ports in Asia. Um, So it seems like a pretty beneficial thing. So why was everybody upset? Well, the argument traditionally is that Americans were upset to engage in a treaty with, uh, you know, former colonial overlords, the one that didn't give the United States quite everything in terms of the West Indies, that in some ways recognized the U.S. was a bona fide nation, but still not of the same standing as the British Empire. That's uh, sort of one interpretation of why it was so controversial. So it's really a party politics thing that the Jay Treaty historians have traditionally seen as this kind of moment that helps to divide um, Jefferson and his Democratic Republicans from Adams, Hamilton, and the Federalist Party. Um, but there's more to it than this, is, is what I sort of argue, because of the Western provisions of the treaty, which we often sort of forget about, that we're looking at these sort of other things that are much more tied into party politics. Um, but it did a couple of things in the West um, and one of the things it did was secure the withdrawal of those British garrisons. So that also seems like a moment uh, to celebrate in terms of sort of American nationhood, right? That these British troops are going to leave finally 13 years after they should have done. That really is a house guess that you want to go, right? 13 years, that's a long time to put up with someone. Um, so it does that, which is great. But what it also does is it... Um, determines the way the board is going to function. And this is the bit that's problematic from an American standpoint. 
So there's two things it does. The second article, so for those of you that really love treaties, we're actually going down into the article level, but only two, and these are important, so I'm emphasizing them. Second article, all of the residents of the Western Post, the people who lived in Detroit, Niagara, so on and so forth, and Detroit had a population of about 2,000 people at this time. That includes surrounding farms, made it the largest place west of the Appalachians within the United States, larger than uh, Marietta, uh, for example. Um, in the uh, down on the Ohio River, um, it allowed them to remain within the United States. So uh, anyone resident at those at those posts could stay in the United States, and they didn't have to become American citizens. And this is what creates begins to create the conditions for what I call citizens of convenience. So you have these long-standing merchant communities, uh, largely francophone communities, but um, also married into um, often Scottish, also Scots-Irish families that are connected to Montreal and then to London. These people don't have to become Americans, but they can stay there. And they're tremendously influential because of these sort of generations-long uh, relationships with you know, in, indigenous hunters. So they get to stay and they don't have to become Americans. They can remain British subjects. So that's going to create problems for American empire, as we'll talk about in a bit. Second thing, third article, oh, third article. It ensures that it shall at all times be free for American citizens, British subjects, and Indians on both sides to cross the border freely. Um, and it also ensures that they will not pay discriminatory customs duties. So in essence, um, Britain has agreed to uh, remove its troops from these uh, garrisons. It's agreed to the location of the border. But it's very open border, right? Very porous, fluid border. People can move back and forth. They have the right, the right by this treaty to do this. I mean, in, in some ways, these rights are part of a longer trajectory of sort of European and particularly extra-European international trade. So you see merchant communities in places like uh, Canton or Guangzhou in China, right? The, the East India companies of, all, of most of the major European nations have, in essence, you know, foreign communities living within China uh, under certain conditions, and they have the right to, you know, move back and forth, and they have the right to not become, you know, subjects of the Chinese emperor. Um, and that made sense in places like that or places like West Africa or places like the Ottoman Empire because there is this you know, significant cultural and uh, uh, religious distinction, right? These are communities that cannot be confused with one another. Um, but that's not the case in North America, right? That uh, the people who are living in Detroit and Niagara or these other places, as we've already discussed, uh, the cultural similarities between them and American citizens, you couldn't tell them apart if you were to talk to them. Um, so this is one of the problems that it creates. It creates an open border and it creates a border. It also cr allows British subjects living within the United States to remain there. So it means that this distinction between who's a member of the American community, if you think about the border now, it doesn't matter if you're British or American, you cross the border just the same. It doesn't matter who you are. Um, in terms of where you live, right, you'd think, well, if you live on one side of the border, you'd be an American. If you live on the other side of the border, you'd be a British subject, Canadian as we call them today. That's not the case either because of that uh, second article. You can live in the United States and still be a British subject. So it creates a great deal of uh, fluidity between these two peoples, and it also creates ambiguity as to you know which national community do you belong to. So on the face of it, treaty, boring, but the kind of problems that it creates, I think, pretty interesting. And one of the ways that you put the the problems created by this treaty, which I think is a very interesting way of putting it, is that because there's so much ambiguity, you know, just built into this treaty that, you know, as you said, you could be, you know, a lifetime British subject living in America, you know, and just, you know, stay there and you get to choose willy nilly who who you want to align with when you when it comes down to it is that uh for america when dealing with these border regions and dealing with people there as you say domestic and international policy basically become one and so how does that work because to me that's very interesting in thinking about how you know the nation has to deal with certain people both as like a domestic and an international like policy standpoint 
I think, you know, one of the places that I focus on in looking at this problem <clears throat> is Detroit, which is where John Askin, the guy I mentioned at the beginning, he lived in Detroit and was part of this problem, I guess, at least from the, the standpoint of American uh, officials. So, you know, Detroit, now uh, American troops take possession of Detroit in July 1796. Then there's this sort of rapid effort by uh, territorial officials in the Northwest Territories. This is all of the federal territory north of the Ohio River at this point. There's this effort to try and expand American institutions into Detroit um, to, you know, hasten the colonization of the of the settlement to bring in these sort of new citizens. And this becomes really problematic because of this sort of inability to tell who's American, who's British. So why is there an, I should have, one of the things I should mention is why is it a problem to tell who's who? Well, you know, I mentioned that British subjects could remain uh, British subjects living in the United States, but the treaty didn't put in place any mechanics to um, determine this, to for individuals to explain their choice, right, to record their choice. There were no records to say who did what. Um, and what that means is over time, people are going to claim to be both, right? Depending on the situation, be like, oh, no, I'm a British subject. British, always been British subject. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, I'm an American. No, I'm an American. You know me. I'm an American. Um, and that's the problem here. So these individuals will they'll decide what makes sense for them. And I don't think this is a sign of their duplicity. I think this is just a sign of the ways in which, you know, these sort of claims to national allegiance didn't really make sense, that these people were part of you know, very long-standing communities. Detroit was founded in 1701. Generations of families living here, and all of a sudden, you know, in 1763, just to uh, be a little bit confusing, when New France falls, the British Empire shows up, and oh, we're British now. And 1796, the Americans show up. Oh, we're Americans now. You know, these kind of outside labels don't make any sense to them. Anyways, what does this mean? Well, it actually creates, you know, problems for the body politic in the Northwest Territory. Um, the local militia and uh, the commander of the local militia won't call it out because he tries and very few people turn up and they tell them they're busy or they're British and they're not coming. Um, they can't find jurors to serve on jury trials because you need to be an American citizen and people don't want to do jury service, which I guess is a little bit like today, although I did do my duty uh, last month and very proud of that. Um, but other people not as keen to serve on juries. So They're like, oh, no, I'm British, not going. Um, and perhaps I think one of the best examples is an individual who was elected to the House of Representatives in the Northwest Territory um, in, I think, 1798. This is off the top of my head now. Uh, but anyway, uh, one of his opponents who lost out uh, argues, no, this guy's a British subject. Yeah, how could he possibly sit in the House of Representatives from the Northwest Territory? Well, they go and seat him for a couple of years while they try to decide whether or not he is actually a British subject. Um, so it creates all these sort of problems for you know what we would consider to be domestic politics within the United States. Um, you know, the, trying to create a healthy body politic is really difficult when you don't know who's a member and who isn't. And you know, individuals can get out of these sort of civic responsibilities by you know claiming that they're British um, if they don't feel like it. But at other times, they're more than happy to use some of these institutions. So many of the merchants that I talk about, including John Askin, loved the local civil courts. They were great for recovering debt. But when it came to you know, having to serve on criminal juries and things like that, they had no interest in doing that at all. Um, so I think it really speaks to the way in which places like Detroit and other centers of sort of uh, American colonization in the West, so eventually St. Louis, um, um, but also places like Vincennes um, and other lesser known places like Prairie du Chien, which is on the Mississippi River. These were sort of major sort of uh, trade administrative centers at the time. They're kind of international zones still uh, after the Jay Treaty. They're not really clearly a defined American place uh, because of the ability of these individuals to shift back and forth as it suits their needs. And speaking of, you know, because we keep going further and further west and everything. And so how does your study, you know, give us a new way of thinking about westward expansion? Because I know when reading this, um, I'm, I was thinking a lot of, you know, all right, like this is happening, you know, in the early republic. And I know there's a lot of, you know, going back and forth between the U.S. and Britain when it comes to Oregon later in the 19th century. And as you say, you know, people are already looking to the Pacific during this time and thinking of the problems that they could occur there. 
one of the other things I probably should have explained before now is, you know, what exactly are these merchants up to? I guess I did talk about Indian uh, hunters earlier, but they're largely still involved in the fur trade, which is something that we tend to think of as a pretty sort of basic enterprise. I mean, I think we still have that sort of ternarian sense of the development of the frontier, right? When he talks about the march of progress and this sort of thing, we think, I think, you know, even though we reject all that stuff, uh, kind of like a Whiggish narrative, right? We, we reject that, but we still kind of do believe in progress, um, even though we don't want to admit it. Anyway, the point is we tend to think of the fur traders being sort of fairly uh, sort of unsophisticated, straightforward, and so forth, which isn't really true. It's an international business uh, involving, oh, uh, hundreds of thousands of pounds. This is pounds sterling of goods um, sent throughout the American West. And this is something that continues to move westwards um, because of the degradation, well, in part because of the degradation of the environment um, through American colonization, British colonization too, uh, the destruction of game stocks, um, and also the disruption of this, uh, of the uh, sort of ongoing conflict between indigenous people in Ohio and in Illinois in particular, and the United States. All of this sort of disrupts the trades. The trade is forever moving westwards in this way. And Oregon is one of the sort of prime places um, that both the United States and Great Britain and certainly uh, you know individual uh, merchants are looking to as the future of this trade. They also have their eyes on China. China is actually a very large fur market. Um, one of the problems that uh, Europeans and Americans both had in trading with China during the early 19th century is, you know, what do the Chinese want? Well, silver was one of the things they wanted, um, which is expensive, right? We know silver is a, a valuable commodity. Um, it leads to species flow outwards, right? The flow of silver outwards, all these things that sound very boring. But what it meant was that furs were one of the things the Chinese would actually buy. They didn't want British uh you know, textiles, cotton and stuff like that. They don't have no need of that. Um, and obviously, we know the tragic story later in the 19th century, which is opium. But during this period, furs were one of the things the Chinese were interested in. So Britain and the United States, when they were looking to the Pacific, to the Oregon Territory, you know, they were thinking about the Pacific world and tying in places like Astoria to China. Um, so I think that's one of the ways in which the fur trade is kind of an interesting way to look at um, this sort of imperial contest between Britain and the United States, because it does move ahead of what we would consider to be settlement or you know formal colonization. It involves the same kinds of people around the same kinds of time. Um, so it provides a kind of continuity in looking at this process. So you know, by the War of 1812, John Jacob Astor and his American Fur Company that he set up, uh, trying to get uh, formal sanction from Jefferson and then from Madison, but not getting it quite, you know, he's established his, uh, or under his orders, uh, a story established in 1811. Uh, and this troubles the, you know, the uh, Northwest Company, which will later merge with the Hudson Bay Company. Uh, that's the major player really in Montreal at this time. This really it troubles them a great deal leading up to the War of 1812. So this is a process that continues you know, it's not just, even though I begin the book largely talking about Niagara and Detroit, but it's something that also plays into St. Louis when St. Louis becomes an American city, or at least in theory, um, after the Louisiana Purchase, that many of the same kinds of things are going on there uh, as are in Detroit, although they work out a little bit differently. But this is another place that's got a long history that has a Francophone majority uh, population um, that's tied into trading networks. Uh, St. Louis is really a, tied to Montreal by the time of the Louisiana Purchase. Um, but this is, I mean, I think that's one of the ways that the sort of the, the fur trade and uh, is can illuminate this sort of broader process geographically that we're not just talking about what historians used to call the old Northwest. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I, I, I appreciate the way of kind of, you know, f taking that distinction and yeah, recognizing that, you know, it's, it's moving West gradually, but, you know, people are already thinking about you know, the new Northwest, you know, it's not something where they're kind of, they're having this artificial line drawn. They're always thinking about moving West and moving West. And, you know, speaking of, you know, just not just the kind of imperial powers of Britain and America at work, or, you know, the indigenous nations as well. You also talk about, you know, how people on the ground, are integral to this empire building for America. 
particularly once we have Jefferson in, in power, as you say, because he's not really a fan of the Jay Treaty, but he's not going to come out and say, OK, we're just going to completely abandon it. So he lets, as you say, um, and if I'm you know understanding you correctly, kind of just lets his like border officials kind of just do what they want to do. Yeah, we might think of it as like plausible deniability today or something like that. Um, so Jefferson, and particularly James Madison, who's Secretary of State under the Jefferson administration, and Albert Gallatin, who's Treasury Secretary, but these guys both play kind of a key role in, oh, I guess, encouraging border agents. And by this, I mean customs collectors, which is a really lucrative position in the 19th century. Um, people love to get these jobs because you get a you get a percentage you get where you get various fees for you know issuing um, permits and things like that. But you also get a uh, a cut of whatever you condemn. Um, so there's a real incentive here um, for you know individuals to to treat this job very seriously because you can make a lot of money off of it. Um, so what Gallatin and Gallatin and Madison, I, I guess I should specify, they both served in the House of Representatives during the period of the Jay Treaty, and they had led opposition to funding the treaty in the House. So these were people who were quite familiar with the treaty and what it did, uh, particularly for the West. Um, so anyway, what they do is encourage, or at the very least, uh, they do not discourage uh, customs collectors, also Indian agents working for the United States, military officials too at these border forts, to find ways to try to make it difficult for British subjects to trade across the border. Um, and this is one of the ways, one of the reasons why some of these British subjects will claim to be Americans as a way to get around these things. So there are various seizures that take place uh, in some of these sort of choke points. So in Michilimackinac, for example, in 1805, a couple of boats that uh, there's bad weather in the straits, so these boats land, um, I think, on Mackinac Island um, to wait for the weather to improve so they can pass up into Lake Superior. They're actually planning to go um, not to the U.S. territory, but uh, northwards into what is Canada. Um, the local customs collector, David Duncan, turns up, takes all their stuff. Uh, eventually, they get it back after a long, lengthy court case. But what they've done in the meantime is they've lost out on the opportunity to get a return on on the trade goods they've got. And they've obtained these goods from London on credit, which means that they're accumulating interest without getting a return. None of this is technically illegal under the Dre Treaty, um, but it clearly goes against the spirit of the treaty and it means that the company is losing money. One of the most dramatic incidents, which I talk about in the book, is on the Niagara River. Uh, John Lees is the collector of customs and him and some soldiers from Fort Niagara pursue um, what's called a brigade of uh, boats. So these would be fairly lengthy canoes, I think at least 20 feet long. Um, from memory, I'm really bad at remembering figures, so it could actually be bigger than that. But anyway, there were 20 of these guys going through the Niagara River on their way through the Great Lakes. Um, and Lees argues that under the uh, Embargo Act, which is passed by under the Jefferson administration as part of these ongoing Anglo-American tensions in the Atlantic world. Anyway, he argues that they should have stopped and asked permission to go through the river, but this is a river which is jointly British and American. Uh, sends, you know, jumps in a boat, no outboard engine, but still put up the sails, chase after these boats, and they start firing on them. So you've got American soldiers firing on British civilians in the Niagara River until eventually they obviously, you know, stop and uh, have their boats seized. So these are all different ways that American officials could try and find loopholes within the customs regulations, within the Jay Treaty to try and disrupt this cross-border trade. And it becomes increasing, you know, a source of increasing concern among the Montreal fur companies that, you know, um, this is making business hard for us. We're you know, This is not improving. Um, the economy of the fur trade, which has been difficult uh, in large part because of the wars in Europe, that most of the furs that end up in, uh, from Canada end up selling in the London market. And then they're re-exported to places like the Baltic and the German states. But with Napoleon in charge of uh, continental Europe and his continental system, the re-export market um, has largely disappeared. So the fur trade is going through a hard time anyway. So the Americans are pretty ingenious at finding different ways to control this border, which is kind of, you know, it's a it's a waterbound riverine border in the 
early 19th century. There's no spy satellites. There's no infrared cameras and all this kind of thing, right? So you kind of imagine it's really difficult to actually control the border. But there are certain these certain choke points, um, such as the Niagara River, which um, the fur trade has to use, right? They need to use these highways. Um, so Americans have really become really adept at controlling these different points and uh, trying to find ways to limit the Jay Treaty without actually violating it outright, that they weren't prepared to abrogate as the technical term the treaty because that would damage their standing in the international community if the United States was to unilaterally unilaterally um, you know reject a treaty, this would make them look like a you know um, second rate country. And you know, going on past you know the Jay Treaty and what's going on there, you know we've kind of been teasing it. And if you're a big War of 1812 buff, you know here we are. Um, you know, you talk about the War of 1812 and the Treaty of Ghent, and you know for people who say might have let's say, just know about the War of 1812 from grade school. They probably have an idea of that the U.S. won the war um, and kind of came out triumphant, you know, with Andrew Jackson and the Battle of New Orleans and everything that happened after peace was technically, you know, established. Um, And if you have, like, say, uh, took a history class in college, you might have an understanding that really it's just a stalemate and nothing really changes. And after the war, it's just the status quo again. And you're pushing back against both of these views, really. And so how do you see the War of 1812 and the Treaty of Ghent that comes as a response to it? Um, how does that fit into your story? Well, in many ways, it's the kind of marks the end of the story, or at least, uh, you know, uh, a significant turning point. Um, So militarily, the War of 1812 is somewhat um, indecisive. At the beginning of the war, it goes very well for uh, Great Britain. Uh, For example, they capture both Detroit, Michilimackinac, these two key uh, places very early in the war. Um, So 1812 is a disaster for the Americans. 1813, they come back fighting. They come back and uh, uh, fight strong. You've got the Battle of Lake Erie. You know, um, we've met the enemy in their hours and all that sort of stuff. Um, you have an American invasion of, of Canada. Um, John Jacob Astor, for example, during this period is tremendously optimistic. He's like, ha, uh, this will get rid of my Montreal um, competitors. And, you know, the Americans launch a failed attempt to invade, uh, capture Montreal in 1813. 1814, mixed bag, right? Uh, this is when Britain or Canada burns the White House, um, um, but the, uh, Britain loses the Battle of Plattsburgh towards the end of 1814. By this point, negotiations are ongoing in Ghent, Belgian town of Ghent. You've got a pretty high-powered uh, American negotiating team, including John Quincy Adams. I think Henry Clay's also there. Albert Gallatin, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, the British team. Uh Kind of a B team, I'm afraid to say, um, because what else is going on in Europe at this time? Congress of Vienna, right, to decide the future of Europe after Napoleon's uh, defeat or temporary defeat, as it turns out. So Britain is mostly focused on Vienna. Uh, its negotiators in Ghent are perhaps not uh, of the highest caliber. And so the war itself is indecisive. We obviously know Jackson's victory at New Orleans. You know, the traditional thing is that's. After the peace is concluded, doesn't really count, but it did count as far as Americans were concerned that it added to this sense of that they had won the war. So the popular reimagining of the war is that it is a great American victory. Um, in terms of diplomacy, I argue that it was a definitely an American victory. That I see the Treaty of Ghent as an imperial treaty uh, in the sense that America, the United States, uh, articulates far more expansive claims over. Uh, the American West, and particularly over indigenous people in the American West. But the treaty itself, Ghent itself, I just gave a paper at the Shia Society for Historians of the Early American Republic uh, just a couple of weeks ago about this. When you look at the treaty, uh, I've forgotten how many articles it is off the top of my head. We're not going to go into all of them. Don't you worry out there if you're still listening. (laughs) Uh, It's like, it's a very few, under 10. Uh, Most of them just dealing with the mechanics of peace. You know, how are you going to uh, make sure that the land and sea forces are, you know, notified of peace and things like that? 
Um, but it, you know, if anyone ever thinks about the Treaty of Ghent, which very few people do, there's only really been one book written on it. There's this phrase, status bo antebellum. It's all Latin, isn't it? So that's fancy. But this idea that the Treaty of Ghent, in fact, the War of 1812 itself returned um, the situation in North America to the, the state it was in 1811, that the war in essence didn't achieve anything. Um, but I think that's quite wrong. I think it's the absences from the Treaty of Ghent that count. Because what it did was it, to use that term again, abrogated. I don't know how many podcasts have used abrogated twice, and that's now three or four times because I've repeated it. Um, but it abrogated the tre- the uh, J Treaty. So it, it basically invalidated the J Treaty that when Britain and US went to war, that earlier treaty is is basically wiped from the books. So what the Treaty of Ghent didn't do was any of the bad stuff, and I say this from the perspective of you know James Madison, I guess, or James Monroe as uh, Secretary of State. It didn't repeat any of the mistakes as American policymakers would have seen it of the Jay Treaty. It didn't grant any rights of residency to uh, British subjects anymore. That right is gone. It didn't agree to um, an open border anymore. The rights of free, rights of free movement that Britons, Americans, uh, Native peoples enjoyed. That was gone. And that is pretty fundamental, I think, because it becomes very clear immediately after the war that these sort of American customs collectors, Indian agents, military officers who've been in some ways practicing during the Jefferson administration, they're ready to close trade at the border. And they do so very quickly um, in a way that cuts off that trade between Montreal and Western places like Detroit, St. Louis, so on and so forth. Um, and it also prevents these citizens of convenience. That so what happens is that these traders that find themselves, I guess, on the wrong side of the border um, as British subjects, particularly in places like Green Bay and Wisconsin, there's a large number of uh, people who are of French ancestry but claim British subjecthood, and many of them fought for Great Britain during the War of 1812. They find themselves really stuck after the war. Um, they're not admitted uh, Indian trading licenses any longer. They're kind of trapped and they write very desperate letters back to Montreal, like, what have you done to us? You've left us out here hanging. What happens is these guys then have to be naturalized as American citizens. And this ends that problem of citizens of convenience that I use to sort of frame my book. Um, so Jacques Paulier is sort of main guy that I talk about at the end. His case ends up going all the way to um, the Attorney General of the United States to decide on you know, how he becomes an American citizen. But what it means is that you have to be naturalized properly, that there's a process, there's a record, you can no longer claim to be British and American, you are one or the other. And that's one of the ways that I think the Treaty of Ghent, the War of 1812, is sort of fundamental to this process of of creating American nationhood. That increasingly after the War of 1812, the, the legal distinction of who's an American and who's a British subject on that northern border comes into uh, clarity in a way that it hadn't done in the preceding 40 years. But the last thing I'll say on that is that this is actually still a process that is sort of unwinding today, believe it or not. So as far as British subjects or Canadians as they are today, there's really no question about that. But in terms of, you know, indigenous rights of movement across the border, this is still something that's being uh, litigated today um, in terms of native peoples along the northern border claiming the right to free movement. So an example in Washington state, where I live, is a member of the uh, Confederated Colville tribes um, crossed into, followed an elk across the border into British Columbia hunting. He did this um, quite consciously because he wanted to sort of litigate this point. Um, and he was prosecuted for, you know, crossing the border illegally or, uh, uh, you know, pursuing this this elk. And its case began, I think, 2009, still being litigated today. Uh, and he's claiming rights under the Jay Treaty, that the Jay Treaty should still allow these transnational indigenous communities along the northern border to move back and forth. And this is actually something that the United States recognizes, um, but Canada doesn't which is kind of a curiosity because right because we tend to think of the US having a poorer record in indigenous rights than Canada um but i guess in some ways you know my study was about the beginning the middle and the end of citizens of convenience but it's also a reminder that these you know i guess partly this podcast now is like a manifesto for doing diplomatic history in some sense but these you know we think of these things as you know dull treaties that didn't really affect anybody that had no bearing to what's going on in the ground well you know indigenous people really care about treaties because many of the 
uh, rights that they uh, claim and their expressions of sovereignty are still grounded in these, you know, what can seem really old and remote treaties, but they're really meaningful. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've found that found that very interesting. I haven't heard about that case before, but um, certainly, you know, that that last point about how, uh, you know, indigenous people often rely on treaties is something that's very, uh, you know, important in our current time um, because, you know, it's one of the it's one of the things that one of the few ways that they are able to actually claim any sort of rights. So I guess to finish this off, um, you know, people are going to obviously go out and buy this book. Once again, it's Citizens of Convenience by Lawrence Hatter. Um, But after they read this, what can they expect from you in the future? What might you be working on right now? Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm obviously talking to Hollywood about a movie. I'm, I'm not. That's a joke. <laughs> um, <laughs> although, you know, there's some cool incidents, but no, uh, I'm not doing that. Um, I'm actually thinking of pursuing um, a study uh, concerning basically the last sort of case that I came up with. I want to. I think what I want to do is look at an indigenous history of the Jay Treaty. And, you know, again, I know it says treaty. But in terms of these rights of free movement, I'm sort of curious how this has been litigated from 1794 when the treaty was signed to the present. Um, you know, how did this, how is this, uh, this uh, using the treaty as kind of a, a framing device to looking at, uh, you know, how indigenous people have tried to use this treaty to maintain their transnational uh, communities through the 19th century, through the 20th century. You know, I'm really, I guess, sort of conscious of our the responsibility of historians today to, I think, be a bit more active in terms of uh, social justice and things like that, which I know probably sounds very self-righteous on my part, but I think, you know, that we see the humanities history under attack uh, all the time. I think there's probably a good reason for that is because we often challenge power. Um, But I think, you know, arguing for the relevance of history means that we need to do you know, even as an 18th century historian, I think that we still live in an 18th century world in so many different ways. So what I hope to do is to sort of, I guess, uh, use my knowledge of the 18th century and my, you know, my research in the 18th century to try to shape sort of public policy issues in the present. I think that's something historians should do, particularly at a land-grant university where I work, Washington State, that, you know, we, have, we should serve the people of Washington. And I feel like that's sort of a worthwhile enterprise. Yeah, I could definitely see that being, you know, a worthwhile uh, book to have, you know, like we were just saying, you know, treaties, you know, very old treaties are still very important to indigenous uh, tribes and nations today. And so I, I personally think that a book like that would be very useful to plenty of people and then just to the wider public for understanding why treaties are very interesting and you should not fall asleep when someone says the word treaty. Absolutely. But in any case, um, thank you very much, Dr. Hatter, for being on the program today. Thanks for having me. 